Beloved, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and uh, this morning as you're turning there, I do want to uh, once again mention that um, we've taken a a little break uh, from our series in the book of Romans in our Lord's Day morning services. We'll continue that uh, very soon. Um, I've been asked by uh, the session to touch on a couple of topics uh, that are important to the life uh, and ministry and piety of the church. Uh, and uh, one of those uh, topics uh, was family worship. Uh, and so we will be considering that uh, this morning uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 uh, through 9, uh, and uh, dealing with a topic that has really been lost in the modern evangelical church, even within the Reformed church. And uh, sometimes you forget over the course of a longer ministry, you know, the average ministry for a pastor is about three years in a church, right, Uh, for all different kinds of reasons. And so uh, it's interesting that this happened in my former church where I was for 10 years, and now I've been here for a little over 10 years. And and sometimes you think, oh, yeah, I taught on family worship before. It was like six years ago. Uh, And uh, half the people sitting in front of you weren't even here six years ago, and you realize that these things are so important and need to keep bringing them before the life of the church, and that's uh, why we are doing that in the month of January with uh, some particular topics. And so would you uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask that you would be pleased through the preaching of your word by your spirit to show us Christ, to show us the gospel, and to show us how the gospel would be central in our homes as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen is right. This is a subject near and dear to my heart. It's not a normal kind of exegetical expository sermon that I would give. I'll give one tonight from Mark. I hope you'll come back from Mark chapter 2. But this morning is a bit more topical, and it's a subject that is very near and dear to my heart, and especially not only because of my own children, but because of all of the children that you see around you in this sanctuary and all the children that are back in our, our nurseries and the homes that can be a place of spiritual life, the cultivation of true piety and godliness. That is the longing of my heart for my own home and for the homes of the families of this church. Now, before I begin, uh, I want to encourage uh, the 20-somethings, um, uh, even those that are, are younger than that, um, don't check out here. 
Don't check out on me. Oh, pastor's preaching a sermon to the families. I guess I can check my ESPN app during the sermon. No, no. Um, In fact, this message is something that I want uh, 20-somethings, those who are single and older perhaps, to remember that this truth needs to be believed before it is practiced. And so my prayer is that everyone in this room, no matter where you are, age, stage, where you are, that you would, by God's grace, believe the truth that comes to us from God's word about family worship, about family piety, and then how we will seek to practice it in our homes or encourage others to practice in their homes or in the future to practice in our homes once we have a family. I remember when our daughter was born in Edinburgh, I was so fired up to teach her the catechism that she was a little baby and I was reading the catechism to her. And, um, and I'm like, why aren't you answering? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I just was so excited to, to do what I had read about for so many years um, uh, in my early years as a Christian. I so longed to, and, and I read this, um, which I'll refer to later, this little book on, on family worship. It's called Thoughts on Family Worship um, by J.A., uh, J.W. Alexander, rather. Uh, it's from the 19th century, and it is just a wonderful book on family worship. And I read that, and I thought, oh, I cannot wait one day to, to be married and have a family so we can do this. So that's, that's my prayer, that you'll have this same desire uh, in the future. This applies to, to, to all of us. This uh, is my favorite part of the day during the week, family worship. When the, the family gathers together in the living room to worship our loving and faithful God. Uh, family worship may not always be a mountaintop experience, especially if you have small children. We're going to talk about that later. But it is the most special time outside of Lord's Day worship together uh, that a family has. It's a time of rejoicing in our salvation. It's a time where we recognize clearly and together as a family that Jesus Christ is Lord of our home, that He's the King. And it's not something else, it's not someone else, it's, it's Christ. And this family activity is to be one of joy and consistency for the glory of God. What is family worship? Family worship simply defined is the daily gathering of a Christian household before God to worship Him. Simple as that, the daily gathering of a Christian household before God to worship Him. This worship would include, but is not limited to, Bible, ring, Bible reading, singing, prayer. It could include catechesis, Bible memory, church history, all these kinds of things. It depends where you are, age and stage, um, how much time you have, and so on. But this is family worship. It's a simple definition. It seems to be the most obvious thing in the world, Right? that as Christians, that we would worship God in our homes. However, such is the case 
that this is one of the rarest activities in the life of a Christian family. For many, it is simply the case because they have never heard any teaching whatsoever on family worship and why we would worship God in our homes. Not just as a matter of informality, not just as a kind of afterthought or we throw up a prayer here or or if there's something bad happens, we sit down and pray about it, but a consistent, regular time of worship in the home that, that this would be so unfamiliar to modern believers demonstrates how superficial evangelicalism has become a mile wide and an inch deep because it is not teaching fathers to lead their families and teaching families to approach God during the week together. Family worship, sadly, is unknown and little practiced among Christians in our day. Uh, The emphasis in modern evangelicalism has become very effeminate and focus has been taken off of male covenant headship. The only thing we hear about masculinity in our culture is toxic masculinity, which in many cases is if you are a man, you are toxic, period. And what we need to return to and be reminded of is the covenant headship and leadership in the home that the father is tasked with, that he is given by by God. Uh, Whenever I do premarital counseling, I, I, I make this a focus that spiritual leadership is to be the man's and he is responsible for this, to lead. And I'll say this and I'll say it again later and I say it during wedding ceremonies in front of everybody to the um, groom that your wife will never respect you more than when you are leading her spiritually. She will never respect you more. You can do all kinds of great things as a husband, but if you lead her spiritually and you pray with and for her and you are committed to the church and you you are committed to serving Christ with her, she will respect you in a way that is above and beyond anything else you could do, whether it's making lots of money or buying lots of, uh, of material possessions or buying a nice house, all that stuff will not make a, a Christian woman respect her husband more than if he leads her spiritually. Now, let me just say this from the outset, okay? No one does this perfectly. So if right now you're sitting there thinking, oh man, Pastor John is stomping on my toes right now. Well, listen, all of our toes are stomped on because none of us do this as we ought. But the point is, our culture has had so much influence upon the church that we have watered down these essential foundational truths of the Christian life, which is that heads of home are meant to lead their families and more than just bringing them to church on a Sunday morning, though that is important. Sadly, family worship has gone to the wayside. We place entertainment and amusement ahead of regular and serious discipleship in the home. This pattern often sends a message to Christian parents, uh, the message of the church, that is, that they are responsible for taking care of the kids and not you. This abdicates responsibility 
of the parents, and it, it, it removes responsibility to diligently teach their children. We look in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we see right there the clear command. I command you today, verse 6, it shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. We are to teach the word of God diligently to our children. Now, there's a kind of overstepping where there's this kind of movement and these ideas that actually the most important thing that happens is in the home and not in the church. And that is an overstepping. That's a, that is, uh, we'll talk about that later, but that's an overstepping. But then there's this, this, what happens most of the time, which is giving all responsibility to the church to disciple the kids, and we really are removed from that. That is completely wrong uh, as well. Too often, worldliness has supplanted piety in our homes. Uh, fathers, uh, we can often be more comfortable with a remote control than with the Bible. Most professing believers can name lots of, let's say, 10 TV channels and 10 movie stars, but can't name the Ten Commandments. How can that be? How can that be? How can essential Christian doctrine be so unknown by modern believers? Well, it's because we are so distracted. We're so pulled in so many different directions. All of our screens are guiding us and leading us to all these different places, but not to the word, not to Christ. So my prayer this morning is that God would awaken in our hearts, all of our hearts, a passion or renewed passion to worship God in our homes, setting aside time each day to give God praise and thanksgiving and to listen to his voice in his word, to make family worship a joyful and consistent priority in our homes. Amen? Amen. Aside from Lord's Day worship, there is nothing that will have a greater spiritual impact on your family than regular, consistent family worship in the home. In his classic book, Thoughts on Family Worship by J.W. Alexander, which I held up earlier, he writes this, quote, A deliberate service in which the voices of infancy and age unite in praising God amidst the flow of mutual affection, is a blessed means of countervailing the hard and selfish world which surrounds him. But above all else, the Christian parent needs something to keep him constantly in remembrance that his children have souls, that they look to him for more than their earthly support, that that, and that there are means whereby under God he may be the instrument of their salvation. Beloved, it is more important that our children have Christ than a scholarship to college. It is more important that our children have Christ than something the world will laud and glorify. It is is more important that our children have Christ than some big paycheck in the future. And so we need the gospel to be in our homes. We want the loveliness of Christ to be the most lovely thing that our children think about and know. The gospel in the home is the, is the gospel central in our homes and lives. Do we go days or even weeks without praying together as a family? 
other than, Lord, thank you. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That was a Lutheran prayer I said growing up. Do we, do we say more than, than this? Do we, do we go before the Lord in the name of Christ in our homes? Our home is, is the center of our lives in so many ways. It should be filled with prayers and singing. And When we um, left Douglasville, Georgia, uh, where we were for 10 years, I remember walking back into the house after everything was loaded up. Marla and the kids were loaded up. The truck was loaded up. And I went back in just for one more look. And I walked around all the rooms. I just wept. All the sweet memories. All the family worship. And what was so wonderful about the transition, among other things, was that another PCA pastor was moving in after we left. Those rooms and hallways were going to continue to be filled with God's praise. But this is what our homes are to be, a place where the gospel is central, where Christ is lifted up. And so my hope is that Those of you who are already engaging in this will be encouraged to excel still more and to keep going, to keep going, to persevere. And then, as probably is the case, to convince many that this is something that you should be doing. Not as a formula to gain God's grace and favor, but as the fruit of your salvation. As the fruit of of your salvation. I want to, to share just a few thoughts, first of all, about the historic foundations of family worship. Um, this is going to be very quick, a bit of a fire hose here. Um, so uh, if you want to talk more about this later with me, that's great. But just a few thoughts about the history of family worship. Number one, we have Ignatius. Ignatius lived from the year 30 to the year 107. He was the Bishop of Antioch the Bishop of Antioch. And he is the human link between the early church and the second generation of believers who followed them. And he commented in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, saying this, quote, Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them the holy scriptures and also trades that they may not indulge in idleness. Now the scripture says, a righteous father educates his children well. His heart shall rejoice in a wise son. It's a quote from Proverbs 23. How about Clement of Alexandria, 153 to 217? He taught that in Christian marriage, the husband and wife ought to spend time together in prayer and scripture reading every morning. Tertullian. 160 to 240, one of the great apologists of the early church. In the close of a book that he dedicates to his wife, he speaks of the spiritual unity that exists between a husband and wife. He exhorts all Christian husbands and wives to, quote, pray together, fast together, instruct and support each other. Fourthly, John Chrysostom, golden tongue, the great preacher of the early church. He taught in the words of Christian historian Philip Schaff that every house should be a church. Every head of a family is a spiritual shepherd, remembering the account which he must give even for his children and servants. We come to the Middle Ages. 
due to the influence of Gnosticism and Manichaeanism and other pagan teachings that identified the physical world, uh, world rather as inherently evil, the church began teaching that in order to be serious with God, you needed to join a monastery or a convent. If you really want to serve God, you become a monk or a nun. This was a more sure way of heaven in the eyes of the, middle, of the church in the Middle Ages. Although there were pockets of Christians who remained true to the gospel, much of the Roman Catholic Church had become corrupt both doctrinally and morally from the years 600 to about 1400. Truly was the Dark Ages for both the world and the practice of family worship. When the word of God is replaced by tradition and superstition and the like, family worship becomes less of a priority among Christians. And then we come to the Protestant Reformation and post-Reformation era, 1500 to 1700. It's one of the most exciting periods of church history where we have men like Martin Luther and John Knox and, and, and John uh, uh, Owen and, and Martin Bootser and John Bunyan and, and many others. And here God and his word once again shone brightly throughout uh, the world. Jerome's Latin Vulgate was translated into common languages, and people were able to read the Bible for themselves. And during this dynamic time of Reformation, you have this, this movement of family worship in the homes. It was a priority for believers. It was actually unthinkable for families who owned a Bible not to read it together in their home and sing and pray together at least once a day. And you know, a lot of people didn't own Bibles. And so they memorized Scripture. There was a, a Bible at the the local church, and it was chained to the pulpit. And you could go there and read it. When I was in California last week, a friend showed me something uh, that's extraordinary. He said, um, we were in his library, and he said, you want to see something cool? I said, yeah, I want to see something cool. He uh, took out a 1560 Geneva Bible, first edition. Um... In that first edition Reformation Study Bible from 1560, the notes on Genesis 17.27 say the following. Masters in their houses ought to be as preachers to their families. That from the highest to the lowest, they may obey the will of God. This was a very different approach than that of the medieval Roman Catholic Church who did not even want the laity to have the scriptures in their homes or in their own language. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer who fled the persecution of Queen Mary I and joined Calvin in Geneva in the mid-16th century, Knox spoke of Geneva as the closest thing to heaven he's ever experienced. He said as he walked along the road, he could hear multiple families singing the psalms together in their homes. They could hear it. Through the preaching of John Calvin at St. Peter's and the fathers responding in obedience to lead their families, the city was being transformed. Our own doctrinal standards in the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, emphasizes the importance of family worship under the chapter, chapter 21, on worship. Listen to what it says. God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth as in private families daily, and in secret, each one by himself. So there's the quiet time, the personal devotion. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, there's public worship. 
which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. And so we approach the Christian life recognizing that we worship God personally as individuals. We want to have that personal time with God, personal devotions, reading scripture, praying. The time with our family or our marriage or our roommates or whatever. And then, of course, public worship in the church. Our confession makes this a priority. There's also a directory for family worship that was written at the time that the Westminster Confession was written in 1647. This directory was highlighted in 1733 by the Synod of Philadelphia to seek, quote, some proper means to revive the declining power of godliness. Do you want to revive the declining power of godliness? Fathers, lead your families. Pray with them. Read the scripture with them. Family worship continued to be an encouraged practice among Protestants until the effects, of course, of liberalism and German higher criticism and revivalism uh, began minimizing the life-transforming power of the Word of God and focusing on programs and techniques and, and uh, crisis conversions and these kinds of things rather than ordinary daily piety. Along with these movements came the Industrial Revolution in the mid-19th century. What happened in, in the Industrial Revolution? People went from agrarian society to an industrial society and pe- things were very different coming from the farm into the big city, life changed in terms of work. Men worked longer hours to seek to make more money or just to survive or to gain promotions in the workplace. And then there was the creation of the car. Now you could go anywhere you wanted on the weekends or during the week. And we see now how technology, not only in the car and in the television, but now in the iPhone and all the screens, it has made the world a very distracted place. And so Christian worship on the Lord's Day as well as family worship and private worship become afterthoughts for for many. These days, one can scarcely find a family who takes this seriously. Now, in Reformed churches where these things are, are taught, of course, you will find families doing this. And many, thank God, of the families in this church are doing this, but it's something we all need to be reminded of and And there are ups and downs, aren't there? There are ebbs and flows. Sometimes we have seasons where we are not being faithful to do it and uh, we need to get back to it. And that's okay. Uh, The Christian life is one of ebbs and flows. Um, But what a blessing it is to get back to it. Um, And so what are the biblical foundations of family worship? Now that we've seen some historical foundations. Well, we've already read in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. Another passage, of course, is in Ephesians 6, 4. If you'll look there with me in your Bibles, Ephesians 6, 4. We read this earlier in our reading of Scripture. Ephesians 6, 4. I'll read prior to that. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This isn't just an informal thing, and it's not just something you hand over to the church. 
Yes, there's a sense in which we worship God all the time when we're out with the kids kicking the soccer ball or, or we're you know, going to an amusement park or whatever. We're, there's a sense in which as we're honoring God and enjoying his good gifts, we're worshiping. We're, but there needs to be a, a formal worship as well where we look at God's word and we open the catechisms and we're reminded here that there's covenant headship, that fathers are to teach their children or in case no father heads of home. Acts 2.39, the promises of the gospel are made to us and to our children. And so we teach them those promises fulfilled in Christ. How about 2 Timothy 1.5? What about the life of Timothy? What do we learn from him? Well, 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then you go to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, Timothy, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted. In fact, that, verse, that word there could be translated infancy. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we have children not simply seen as the future of the church, but as a part of the church. Paul is addressing the children in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. He's not ignoring them. They're not shuffled out of the room. He's, he's speaking to them through this letter. The young children. And he's saying to the fathers, teach them diligently. And he's giving testimony of Timothy, having been taught diligently from his infancy by his grandmother and his mother. And these things, it says, how from childhood you have been made acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's learning the Old Testament from his grandmother and his mother. And and these promises in the gospel of the gospel in the Old Testament are leading him to Christ. Well, what are some objections to family worship? Joel Beakey, in his little book called Family Worship, which I would recommend, gives nine objections, which I'll put before you with some comment. The first one is this. There is not explicit command in the Bible to have family worship. Uh, I'll tell you, over the years, I've heard this uh, objection to lots of things, like, like um, for instance, church membership. The entire New Testament assumes that you will be a part of the body of Christ, active, involved, under authority, every, you know, just over and over and over. It, it, it just clearly states that. But there's no golden verse, you must join a church. First Hesitations, chapter 3. Right. Don't look up First Hesitations, okay? It's implied by good and necessary consequence, we are called to be members of the church, active members who become accountable and so forth. Some would say there's no explicit command in the Bible to have family worship, but by good and necessary consequence, it's implied that we read God's word in our homes and that we worship together. It's what we do. We're Christians. Some would say our family doesn't have time for family worship. My next question would be, what do you have time for? 
Because we seem to have oftentimes time for everything but the Lord. We have time for all these activities, but not for the Lord. There is, thirdly, objection that there is no regular time when all of us can be together. Yes, that is true. And it's often true when kids get to be in their teenage years and they've got all kinds of activities in the evenings. And, you know, sometimes there may be someone missing. Sometimes, uh, you know, half the family's gone. You, you, still, you still do it regularly. How about our family's too small? No family's too small to have family worship. Fifthly, our family is too diverse in age for everyone to profit. You know, we have a 15-year-old and a 2-year-old. Like, how do you do that, pastor? Huh? How do you do that? Well, you have different resources that you pull out. You read the children's Bible, and you do a little short lesson for the 2-year-old. It better be short. You're going to have a problem. And then perhaps the 2-year-old is whisked away, and then there's a, a lesson for the older one. I mean, there's different ways to approach this. We shouldn't just throw our hands in the air and say it just is impossible. Sixthly, I'm not gifted to lead our family in worship. I've heard this a lot, and a lot of times, um, heads of home uh, can feel nervous. Uh, perhaps their wife uh, is more knowledgeable in the scriptures. Um, but here's the thing. Every Christian man is called to lead their family. And so that may mean at first that you read the scripture and you pray a short prayer or you read a table talk devotional out loud. You talk about it for a couple of minutes. It doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be a seminary lecture. Now that's the one thing you need to be careful of, brothers. You get zealous about this and you go home and say, all right, everyone here for family worship. And uh, we're singing these four hymns. I'm going to do a 20-minute prayer. And then we're going to read these four chapters of Scripture. And then we're going to pray some more. I, you know, and then suddenly everybody's dreading family worship every night because it's going to be forever. And uh, Dad is a little overzealous. It's important, as we'll talk about in a minute, to keep all of this in perspective and to do things rightly. Seven, the objection is some of our family refuses to participate. Maybe there's some kind of a problem when one of the family doesn't participate. Well, you, you have it without that person and you pray for them in love and hope that they'll come down, come in to family worship in the future. Eight, we don't want to make hypocrites of our unconverted children. Well, as I already mentioned, our children are covenant children, and we are to teach them God's word. We are to disciple them. And um, there's an interesting meme I saw one time of, uh, I'm not saying this because I'm, you know, being against uh, Alabama fans here, okay? So just get that. Even if you know me, I am sort of against Alabama fans. But I saw, but I saw a meme, 
And it had an Alabama dad and mom all decked out in all Alabama colors. And their, their little girl was just decked out in Alabama gear. And they're saying, we are an Alabama family. We root for Alabama. We go to the Alabama games. And you are a child of an Alabama family. And then the next frame, it's them at church. You can believe whatever you want. We're not going to tell you what you should think about this. We don't want to do, you know, it's just, the, it's just crazy. This idea, you know, that we would sort of not include our children because we don't want them to grow up to be hypocrites. We teach them the gospel. We have a joyful expectation that they will believe the gospel and embrace all that their baptism has promised them in the gospel. Ninthly, I can't carry a tune. Pastor, I sound like a foghorn. You know the foghorns the other night in the bay? I sound like that. And so I don't, know, I don't think we can sing. It's okay, sing, be a foghorn. Maybe you get a, maybe you get a, uh, uh, a computer or a, or a speaker and you sing along to a hymn and it sounds a bit better, but don't let that stop you from singing in your home. Oh, that our children would know homes where the singing of God's grace is taking place. What are the benefits of family worship? The benefits of family worship. Well, number one, the salvation of our children. That's a pretty good benefit. The salvation of our children. God uses means to save his elect. He uses his word by his spirit to raise sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. And our children are sinners. They need Christ. They need the gospel. And we, we share this. We teach this. Shouldn't we be committed, therefore, to teaching our children the gospel from the whole counsel of God in our homes? We know that it is God who saves, but we also know that he chooses to redeem children ordinarily in the context of a Christian family. Most Christians around the world, wherever you will go, and I've been to many, 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 many countries doing ministry, and when I meet people and I talk to them about their past, it's typical, it's ordinary, it's normal that they have a family member that led them to Christ. Usually parents, sometimes grandparents. But this is God's pleasure to work through the family. He created the family. He instituted the family. So it makes sense that he would bring his people to himself through the family. There are other ways, of course. But listen to this from Psalm 78, 5 through 7. Quote, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Beloved, I do want to say on a pastoral note that I am fully aware of how many covenant children, when they leave the home, walk away from the faith or maybe are in some kind of a halfway house. Perhaps they haven't said, I reject the faith, but they're actually not exercising faith and involved in the church and so forth. And this can be deeply painful. And there can be feelings of guilt. I want to tell you this morning that it is important that you recognize that we do 
what we know to do. We seek to be faithful as parents. We give our children the gospel. And at the end of the day, they are responsible before God. And we must give them over in our hearts and minds to that. Our children stand before holy God just as we do. They have had the blessing and the privilege of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the end, will they receive it by God's grace through faith or will they be stubborn and reject it? And so when it comes to our children, if any have left the faith, we pray for them. We do not lose hope. We continue to knock on the door and persevere in prayer and seek to love them and to be kind to them, be patient with them and continue to offer to them the words of life. Amen? So this isn't some kind of a formula. Do this, this, and this. I, I hate parental books like that. It's like you do these five things and what's implied is everything's gonna be great in the future. Ha. That person's living in an ivory tower who says that. But we know that God uses these things and has done so for all time. And this is a powerful example to our children, isn't it? This shows our children that we truly are committed to the Lord, not just for an hour a week, but every, every day. I want you to hear this. It's a long, longer passage, but so powerful. I wanted you to hear this. This is written in the 19th century. The daily, regular, and solemn reading of God's holy word by a parent before his children is one of the most powerful agencies of a Christian life. We are prone to undervalue this cause. It is a constant dropping, but it wears its mark into the rock. A family thus trained cannot be ignorant of the word. The whole scriptures come repeatedly before the mind. The most heedless child must observe and retain some portion of the sacred oracles. The most forgetful must treasure up some passages for life. No one can part of juvenile education. No one part of juvenile education is more important. Between families thus instructed and those where the Bible is not read, the contrast is striking. To deny such a source of influence to the youthful mind is an injustice at the thought of which a professor of Christianity may well tremble. The family affections are molded by family worship. The child beholds the parent in a peculiar relation. Nowhere is the Christian father so venerable as where he leads his house in prayer. The tenderness of love is hallowed by the sanctity of reverence. A chastened awe is thrown about the familiar form and parental dignity assumes a new and sacred aspect. There is surely nothing unnatural in the supposition that a forward, forward child shall, shall find it less easy to rebel against the rule of one whom he daily contemplates in an act of devotion. The children look more deeply into the parent's heart by the medium of family prayer. A single burst of genuine fatherly anxiety in the midst of ardent intercession may speak to the child a volume of long-hidden and travailing grief and love. Such words uttered on the knees, though from the pain, excuse me, from the plain untutored man, are sometimes as arrows in the heart of unconverted youth. The child is forced to say within himself, How can I offend against the father who daily wrestles with God in my behalf 
How can I be careless about the soul for which he is thus concerned? And often when separated from the domestic circle, namely from the home, has the wanderer bethought himself. My father and mother are now praying to God for their boy. He is little red in the human heart who fails to recognize here a great element of family piety or who refuses to believe that the tenderness of a child's attachment is increased by the stated worship of the household. Oh, that the prayers of the parents of children who have left the home and who have wandered from God would, in the best sense, haunt their hearts. The loving, soul-stirring prayers of a father for his children would, would stoke the hearts of those who have wandered from the faith and bring them back one day. But will those prayers be heard? Will they be known? When a father leads his family in this way, or ahead of home, as it were, there is a true sense of duty fulfilled in the heart. There's all these ways that the world is telling you to feel like a man. There is no way you will feel more like a man than when you lead your family in this way. When we lead in God-centered worship, our homes become God-centered, Christ-focused. The gospel becomes central, and the gospel must remain central. Let me please make this clear. It is so vital that the gospel be the center of family worship. Not rules, not statutes, not discipline. Those, those things will be a part. But it needs to be the gospel. They need to know God's grace and his love and his truth as related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ's life, death, and resurrection for us. And that's always a part of the prayers, the forgiveness of sins and the, the grace of God. May that be central in our lives and in our homes. Okay, pastor, what do I do? What's a, a liturgy for family worship? Very simply, Bible reading. If you have children, going through the catechism with them, memorizing scripture, catechism questions and answers. Singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Prayer, which would include confession of sin and thanksgiving and praise. Praying for pastor. Praying for missionaries. Praying for a heart for the lost, for the church, for lost neighbors, praying prayers that you know are going to cultivate in the heart of your family the heart of God, as it were. And then there may be extra reading. Church history for children, for instance, could be something you focus on. What are some practical hints? Well, one is brevity. Unlike this sermon. Brevity. Richard Cecil said this, quote, let family worship be short, savory, simple, tender, and heavenly. Short, savory, simple, tender, and heavenly. Isn't that a wonderful definition? You know, 10 to 15 minutes on average. You may be able to do a little more if the kids are doing well. It may need to be five minutes. It may need to be two minutes. It may need to be, you read a scripture, the kids are going crazy. Amen. Okay. But that regular bringing out of the Bible, bringing out of the hymnals, it is communicating something about your home and to your children.
in our own home. Of course, we did things differently when the kids were, were young, but in our own home now, we, we read Scripture. Actually, the first thing we do is we sing out of the Psalter hymnal. And so you should have Psalter hymnals in your home. I would encourage you to do that. We bring out the Psalter hymnal, we sing, and then we read Scripture. We'll say a few words, maybe have some discussion, and then we'll pray. We will sometimes, one of us will just pray. Most of the time, all of us will pray. And then we'll sing the doxology at the end. It's simple. It's simple. Brevity, consistency, even when visitors are over for dinner, these kinds of things, have family worship. A former teammate of mine was converted because he was staying in a home where they had family worship. He did not grow up in the church. He was so moved by family worship. He lived there for several, actually lived there for an entire summer during the season, and he was converted through family worship. Another piece of advice is turn off all phone notifications and Alexas and TVs and iPads and everything else so that you are undistracted. Also, another point of encouragement is to make it a joyfully reverent time. It needs to be serious. And it's also a time, by the way, where you prepare your children and train your children to sit in public worship. I often hear from visitors, I'm amazed at the kids, all the kids, kids, I hear this, all the kids are in the service and they're so good. They listen, they, and, and they, they pay attention, they sing. Sometimes I can even hear them singing. Sometimes I say amen. And they're amazed. And you know what I tell them? I say, well, you know, these families are committed to family worship. The kids are doing this every night. It's why they're used to it. And so... The Lord blesses in that way as well. Repetition is good in family worship. You know, choose a, use our hymn of the month or psalm of the month to sing over and over or choose a, a, another psalm or something to sing over and over and over. That repetition is good. Also make things age appropriate. There are good children's Bibles, uh, good church history for kids. At Christmas time, you can do Advent devotions, but make it relatable to the ages of your children. A friend of mine wrote a wonderful book. I want to commend it to you. It's called A Neglected Grace. A Neglected Grace. It's on family worship. And my prayer for our congregation is that this would not be a neglected grace. This is a gift to you. The Lord has given you his son. He's given you his word. He's given you your home where you spend a large amount of your time. Make that place, a place where you gather together to worship the Lord. I pray that our living rooms would be sanctuaries during the week. As we raise our voices in praise with our children, as we read the Holy Scriptures, as we glory and boast in the gospel and call upon the name of the Lord in prayer. All of it which is motivated by the free gospel of grace in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time considering this wonderful subject and something that could truly change the life of a family if embraced and practiced. And we pray, Lord, for those uh, who have gotten away from it, that it would be recovered. For those who are doing it, that it would be strengthened. And for those, Lord, who have been hearing about this for the very first time, that it would start and be a great blessing 
in the life of that home and to the children of the home. And we pray this in Jesus' name.